Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. What about doing one about a real Australian hero, a man who symbolises everything the Australians brought to Gallipoli? You mean John Simpson Kirkpatrick from England? South Shields, <laughs> but he was almost typically Australian. He was a great character. Uh, he he really was for me a true hero. I know the exaggerated stories about what he did, of course, a bit of a kickback, but still a hero to me. What about you, Gary? How do you feel about him and his donkeys? I liked his donkey. Donkeys. I oh, know. I'm only thinking of one in particular. Which one do you think about? Pew. 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 <laughs> Pew. Barney McGrew. Cuthbert Dibble and Grub. That's what he called his donkeys. No, he didn't. He called them Murphy, Murphy Two, and Queen Elizabeth. Oh, you miss. You're ruining the whole impression of professionalism that I have striven to do. You have met. You have met me, haven't you? Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hi, and welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Uh, uh, really excited to be here again with my good friend Gary, uh, Gary Bain, who uh, is uh, is the person who's helping with these podcasts. Uh, he's a vital part of these podcasts to me. Um, and uh, how are you feeling today, Gary? Uh, I'm feeling very well today, thank you, Peter. It's it's always nice to come to Hart Towers and uh, conduct these podcasts from a, a different part of the mansion. And and today we're in the uh, outdoor swimming pool area, which is very nice. Well, it is. Uh, it's a bit cold, I have to say. <laughs> Perhaps we should have thought this through. But yes, we are in deck chairs next to the outdoor swimming pool. Uh, uh, it's got a bit of ice on it, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, we, we if might... you if you hear a sort of shaking sound or sort of so that that's a sh- <laughs> Shivering. <laughs> yeah, we Nothing may else. we may not wanted to have worn speedos today. But no, hey, hey. Uh, always a mistake. Always a, well, certainly with you, always a mistake. So, um, what are we talking about today, then, Peter? Well, we're talking about uh, John Simpson Kirkpatrick. Ah, the man with the uh, the donkeys. That's that's him, uh, great d- Australian hero. Well, and that's that's entirely the point. Now, he, he's someone we both stood next to his grave, and we we both thought. Uh, I've always been trying to encourage people, and I know it's for you as a... He's a very interesting man, and uh, he's a, a mess in a way of contradictions, and he is someone that uh, isn't quite what he appears uh, in the myths, I think. And also, I mean, let's start with the real basics here. What was his name? Well, his name was John uh, Kirkpatrick. That's his parents' name. Uh, he was uh, born uh, 6th of July, 1892. Uh, and you're going to say, which part of Australia was he born in? Well, he was born in Eldon Street, Tyne Dock, South Shields, County Durham. Uh, and his parents were Scottish, Sarah Kirkpatrick, who was Nay Simpson, that's where the Simpson comes from, and Robert Kirkpatrick, 
uh, uh, his dad. One of eight children. Now, they're a working class family and working class in, uh, in South Shields is, is quite a tough life. Uh, especially if you've got eight of you. Uh, he, uh, he, um, he, he went to the local school, uh, Barnes Road Junior School. And then Morton Road Senior School. They have great names for schools in England. <laughs> we, we try and, you know, not that. And he left at 11 years old and worked as a milkman uh, with a horse and cart, uh, which he's always considered... Uh, Sorry, can you just repeat that? He left at 11 years old. According to the references I've seen, uh, I'm not an expert on Simpson. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been trawling through various books I've got, and that seems to be the... No idea. He left young, but this is not nineteen. Uh, whenever is is you left school, uh, eighty four or whatever it was. This is uh, <laughs> this is the this is the, the the well. This is a long time ago, and people left school early. Um, he worked as a milkman. He also uh, he also uh, uh, and this is that you, you know the stories of saints. They always think that there's something significant in their life beforehand that sort of prefaces what happens to them in the end, how they died, you know. And, uh, and he, uh, he, he, uh, he uh, by legend, and I believe in fact, used to help on the beach. I didn't know South Shields had a bloody beach, to be honest, but uh, he used to help on the beach uh, with the donkeys, with the kids on the donkeys. To, and, and this is later on considered somehow some sort of significant thing. I'm not so sure about it. Uh, he volunteered to train as a gunner, in, a, in the territorial forces, it as was. I don't know anything about that at all. Uh, I'm afraid. And then, uh, in his dad died um, very young, and he, uh, 1909, he joined the Merchant Marine, the Merchant Navy, and uh, and went off uh, went off in the, as a sailor. Um, and uh, you know, um, but the, the point about this, one point we have to make absolutely clear is he's British. Uh, he's not someone who left Britain as a child. You know, he left Britain when he was uh, sort of 17 or 18. You know, so in those days, he left as an adult, you know. Uh, and I think that's, that's significant if you're trying to claim him as an Australian hero in one, in one way. And I, don't, I will come to that later. So did he have a distinguished uh, service in the, uh, the Merchant Navy? No. Uh, apparently the ship he was on was awful and several of the crew deserted <laughs> when they got to Australia. Uh, he deserted his ship in uh, May 1910 uh, at Newcastle, South Wales, New South Wales. Uh, and uh, then comes a period of his life which is, you know, sort of roused about. He's just basically wandering about Australia, up, down, here, there, up, down, the other way, uh, taking various jobs. And uh, just uh, various ideas, cane cutting in Queensland, sugar cane, I presume that is, gold mining in Western Australia, uh, coal mining in New South Wales, which is a bit perverse because he tried to avoid mining because that's what happened to a lot of people in County Durham, is down the pit. Uh, and he took these various jobs uh, and then for a long period worked as a steward and a stoker and a greaser. I've always wanted to know what a greaser does, but it sounds great fun, uh, on the various uh, coastal ships, uh, or, you know, going around the Australian coast. Now, to his credit, I understand, although seemingly drifting from, from job to job, during that whole period, he was sending a large part of his money back to the UK to his mother. I, I think this is impressive. Up to a third of his wages and writing regularly to his mother. Now, if he's such a feckless layabout, that's not the behaviour of a feckless layabout, in my view. Um, he, uh, 
It's certainly, you know, you think back to your, well, did you write back to your mum from the army? Did you send to, her a third of money? I used to write back to my dad and ask him for money. and that does sound more like it doesn't it and and i'm quite impressed by this so you know when people try and set him up as a complete you know as a sort of ruffian and somebody who's slightly reprehensible you can go too far as with most things you can go too far uh with it so was he uh, a really nice chap you know quiet polite you know or was he a thug and the answer is as usual, he, 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 he's between them. He's, he's, you know, he does, he is quite a rough type, uh, but he does send money home to his mum. And he writes regularly and continued to write regularly right up to his death. Uh, one thing some people don't like, and I do, <laughs> is he had firm left-wing views. He wasn't a wishy-washy liberal like yourself, uh, um, you know, with your social democratic <laughs> ideals. Uh, he was a lefty. Uh, as it was perceived then. And he wrote he wrote this uh, at one point. Uh, 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 I often wonder when the working men of England will wake up and see things as other people see them. What they want in England is a good revolution and that will clear out some of those millionaires and lords and dukes out of it. And then with a Labour government, they will almost be able to make their own conditions. Well, <laughs> they were hoping for that back in 19... 19- Oh nine or whatever it is, not in ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and some of us are still hoping for it because whenever we get a Labour government, they seem to also come from Eton. And uh, but never mind, uh, that's something for a later day to debate. Uh, he'd grown up with all these jobs, a strong lad, and he was uh, he was considered tall at uh, five foot eight inches tall. Now, to many people, that would be near dwarf size. <laughs> as you can imagine uh, uh, and uh, uh, perhaps he was like you with uh, an extremely long body and sort of legs that sort of stumpy would be an expression on yeah I, I would call him average height to be quite honest with you player. <laughs> but certainly for, for, for 1914 a little above average height things have changed and where you as 5 foot 10 is it uh, you uh, appear like a dwarf to many of your friends you know there's a famous picture indeed of you with some of your chums um now, uh, let's get on. Uh, so what happens uh, when the war breaks out? Is that, I think, somewhere we need to go? Uh, what, do you think would, what, what do you think he'd be thinking? Well, it, rather bizarrely, you know, it, I would think he would be trying to avoid service, given the limited knowledge I have of the type of man he is described as being. But apparently he did exactly the opposite. He did. Uh, 23rd of August 1914, he enlisted as a stretcher-bearer, not a gunner, a stretcher-bearer with C-section 3rd Australian Field Ambulance at Swan Barracks in Francis Street, Perth. Uh, now, he enlisted as John Simpson, and this is part all, but you know, that's his mother's maiden name, uh, and he dropped his real surname, almost certainly to avoid being identified as a deserter from the Merchant Marine, who are, who can be quite vengeful by nature uh, and uh, perfectly capable of, you know, reaching out and grabbing it. There's lots of thought as to why he enlisted, uh, and many people have said that he was trying to get back to England, where he intended to desert, possibly join the forces there. I, I haven't really seen any evidence of that, but he certainly assumed that they were going back to England and hoped to see his mother on leave during the period of training he was expecting in England. That, that much is expressed in his letters. Uh, and uh, whatever it is, 
what whatever you think of him and what he's doing, he he did enlist. Um, he he says this in a letter to his mum. Uh, now, mother, I can't tell you exactly when we're going to leave, but I don't think we'll be long now. I think that we're going to Aldershot when we get to England, so I'll be able to come up and see you pretty often before we go to the front. So that's more what he's... He's not really talking about deserting there, is he? Although, would you tell your mother that? Uh, but what he... He's, you know, he's clearly hoping and expecting, because that was the original intention, that the Australian, the Australian Imperial Force uh, would be going to England to train. They didn't, did they? Uh, the Anzac Corps, which was the Australian Division and the Austra- uh, you know, and the Australian and New Zealand Division, were uh, assigned to Egypt. They were sent to Egypt to finish their training, uh, and then they would eventually be sent to Gallipoli, which was a campaign that was being planned. Uh, and he wrote home to complain. <laughs> <laughs> I like Simpson, I really do. Uh, it is Christmas Day today. I was looking forward to spending it t- today in Shields, but I was doomed to be disappointed. I would not have joined this contingent if I'd known they were not going to England. I would have taken the, sh- the trip home and had a holiday at home, then joined the army and went to the front. But Egypt it was. And then later on he writes, We're, we're, we're camped ten miles out of Cairo at the entrance of the desert. You can see nothing but sand, 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 you know. Um, now, by this time, how was he acclimatising to the army? Because there, there can be trouble with people like him. Well, yeah, I, I, I think one of the common misconceptions is that, you know, everybody um, is amenable to discipline and not everybody is, as you well know, through your extensive interviews with uh, uh, veterans over the years, you get just about everything in the army that you get in civilian life. And, you know, he was not amenable to discipline. He wasn't. And this is a comment from his sergeant, Sergeant Hookway. Uh, he was in his section. He said, A big man, very muscular, though aged only 22, and was selected at once as a stretcher bearer. He was too human to be a parade ground soldier and strongly disliked discipline. Though not lazy, he shirked the drudgery of forming fours and other irksome military tasks. Uh, now that's interesting because that that's before they go. Uh, although I, I don't know when uh, Hukwe says it, but this is before they go. It seems clear that he wasn't particularly amenable to discipline. Didn't like boring, mundane tasks. So, why did he join a field ambulance brigade then? I, I don't know, and there's not much, you know, I, I, we'd, I'd hesitate to, but it's hard work in a field ambulance work, and you're going to be, if you're a stretcher bearer, which is what he was, you're going to be carrying stretchers which are heavy, and it's dangerous, and it's not an easy task uh, for anybody, uh, so, uh, you know... Uh, so was he a man of con- contradictions then? Because that sounds contradictory to certainly how Hookway is describing him. Uh, I think it is. And it's certainly, con- you know, there's, there's elements of contradiction in his later later performance when he gets to Gallipoli. It, it, but then people are full of contradictions. You know, a lot of characters, a lot of people uh, have contradictory elements in their personality. And no, I think... <laughs> it's fine. Yes, they do. <laughs> anyway, um, 
He penciled a will on April the 6th, 1915, you know, and he wrote, uh, in the event of my death, I give the whole of my property and effects to my mother, Sarah Simpson, which now, so she's called Simpson at that time. Uh, or that's probably him, you know, making sure. They then go off to Mudros on the island of Lemnos. Uh, it's a big harbour area. And they, they, they sit there and they practice, they practice their landings there, practice landings. Uh, and, of course, the, the stretch bows will be practising their role within the landings, rescuing the wounded, bringing them back to the collection points by the, the sea. Um, he says, uh, he writes uh, his last known letter, it reads, I can't tell you where we are, for the censor would cross it out, but you will be hearing about the Australians as soon as we make a start. Hoping this will find you and Annie, that's his sister, uh, that he particularly is fond of and writes about all the time, well, as it leaves me at present, which is very similar. That's a standard British army. I hope it finds me as it leaves me in the pink normally, but he didn't. So then... They do their final training there, and they're getting ready for the Gallipoli landings, uh, you know. And he doesn't know what's going on. That you know, he doesn't. Uh, nobody uh, of his rank would know what's going on. So, just for, for my benefit, Peter, what's the distance from Madras to Gallipoli? It's about sixty miles. So visible. Uh, at sometimes, in fact, sometimes I've tried to point it out the other way, the reverse way. The thing about sea is that it's an interesting point. Is sometimes you can see things sixty, hundred miles away, and sometimes, uh, for instance, Imbros, the, another island, is only twelve miles away, and sometimes you can't see it at all from Gallipoli. It's just weird. V- v- you know, it depends on so many things. But about sixty miles away, uh, I doubt if he saw it before uh, before they went uh, in April because it's cloudy. Um, so what happens? Well. They travel on, on a destroyer, the Ribble, uh, uh, to land uh, with the rest of the 3rd Brigade at uh, what became known as Anzac Cove, uh, which is uh, just to the north of the Gabatepe Peninsula. To be honest, if you don't know the, the geography of, of Gallipoli, it's difficult to describe without a map. But they're, they're landing in an area, you know, they're, they're, they're the 3rd Covering Brigade. The third, sorry, third Australian Brigade, which is the covering force, which are meant to go inland, seize the first three ridges, and then hold the third ridge, or gun ridge as it's known, and then behind that, the other, the first and the second brigade, would land as formed bodies of men and then act to achieve the objectives, which is to secure the left hand in the high ground up on Battleship Hill, and then together to move forward to take the... Maltepe, which should always be referred to as the cone-shaped hill, because if you ever see it not referred to as a cone-shaped hill, I'll be bloody amazed because everybody calls it the cone-shaped hill, partially because it's cone-shaped. So, did they land in the right place? There's this suggestion that the uh, the Anzacs were landed on the wrong beach. It, it's uh, the, the the beaches are clearly marked on the original plans as from halfway down up. Uh, Brighton Beach, I think it is, uh, to uh, towards Fisherman's Hut, which is there. And then in the middle of this is Cove. Now, due to various things, the lines of the initial toes, Constantina get muddled up and uh, land round Ari Bernou, which is where one of the cemeteries is that we visited. Uh, and then the destroyer toes land uh, a little bit afterwards, not long afterwards, uh, all along in the correct places. Uh, but everything's jumbled and muddled. And then the 3rd Brigade failed to take the 3rd Ridge. They take the 2nd Ridge and then McLaren's uh, Ridge, I think, McLaren's Hill, anyway, 2nd Ridge, and then they, they, they don't get any farther. The uh, the command structure fails to get a grip. 
you and I have both stood there and it is not clear to me where the second ridge is and whether there is even a third ridge. So was confusion raining at that point? Confusion certainly was raining. It's, I mean, you're going there and you climb uh, pluggies and where, where, where's the second ridge? Is that the one in front of you? Well, actually, that's Russell's top and that's part of the first ridge. And, and that thing on the right, is that, is that the second ridge? Well, yeah, that's 400, on, that's 400 plateau, which is part of second ridge. But actually, the bit you're talking about is actually straight in front of you, behind Russell's, you know. So it, it's very confusing. When you get up on second ridge, you can see the third ridge, but there's a hellish, awful bit of ground between you. What happens is, and we, this is not why we're doing this blog, but what happens is the, uh, the, uh, the Turks start to come in from the right, uh, the, the commander, um, Sinclair McLaren panics in a sense, starts diverting everything to the right. Uh, Then the Turkish uh, forces arrive on the left and seize the high ground there. And before we know where we are, that the whole lot are pinned inside the second ridge. And it's only about a kilometre at most deep and about uh, a mile long. Uh, you know, it's a most pathetic small bridgehead you can imagine. That's not saying the troops are pathetic. The troops perform as bravely as you might expect. Uh, but they're inexperienced. The Turks are, are very, very well-led by both Sefik Akka, who leads the troop of the Turks, who are coming from the right, and uh, uh, Kemal uh, Ataturk, later known as uh, Mustafa Kemal to us, <laughs> uh, coming in from the left, the high ground. And the Turks are very well led. They're tough, determined troops. Uh, the, 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 the terrain is appalling, and they're trapped. And this is where the story of Simpson really begins. So this area is... Uh, pretty dangerous for anybody to be operating in but particularly for stretching areas it, it is and everywhere is within uh, can be hit by somebody whether it be turks on Gavatepe who are firing in from the side or the the, the the olive grove down there there's artillery there or they can fire and in the center of the anzac position is a, a, a valley called shrapnel valley which leads in towards the 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 second ridge uh, which is where the Australian front line is running along from uh, 400 Plateau through Courtney's, Steeles and and, uh, and uh, Quinn's posts onto Pope's and round onto Walker's Ridge. And this valley, Shrapnel Valley, leads up past a hill called Bronze Hill, which we've both been on. Yep. And uh, on the other side of that is uh, Bridges Road. Uh, that's not... that's And then it, the, 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 the valley goes further and turns into being Monash valley and then bends around behind the ridge and that is where Simpson was operating and why was that such a dangerous area well I've got I've got I've got a quote from uh, from uh, here he is Captain Horace Viney who's describing it a little later in the campaign in fact just before he was killed and Horace Viney says uh, talking about the Shrapnel and Monash Valleys. They're the same valley. This just goes around the corner, basically. One had to walk on alternative sides of it, according to how the valley twisted and turned. Those who knew it could go up and down it comparatively safely by keeping undercover on one side until a twist in the gully exposed that side to the Turkish fire. It was then necessary to dart across the gully, a distance, a distance of, of from 10 to 20 yards, and gain shelter of the opposite bank. 
The Turks had marked down the crossing places and had them covered by snipers or machine guns. The worst crossing places had been protected by barricades, but they were neither high enough nor long enough to give complete immunity. Having been up and down Monash Gully several times, I'd learned by painful experience just where the dangerous spots were. On several occasions, I'd beaten the Turkish snipers in my dashes across the gully only by inches, and consequently I did not loiter and Julian in crossing such places. So that gives you an idea. Now that's a little bit later, that's around about the 15th, uh, he, he wrote about, he's writing about that. But that is the situation in the gully. In fact, of course, the barricades hadn't been built earlier on. And in fact, remember, early on, they're not quite entirely sure where the Turks are and which, what they can see and what they can't. And until you learn, learning can be a painful business, Gary. If you don't know where the Turkish machine guns can get and where they can't, it can be painful. So stretcher bearers arrive along with uh, the uh, advancing troops, presumably being directed to remove those injured that uh, they can get to. And our friend uh, John Simpson... Uh, seems to do his own thing. Well, what happens first is they land in a rowboat on the first day. We don't hear much about him on the first day, but apparently he worked as normal. On the second day, 26th of April, um, he's working in in Shatmo Valley, and uh, he sees a donkey. Wow. Many thoughts must have passed through his mind here, obviously. Uh, uh, But what did happen was he... He, he was carrying a bloke, a wounded chap, on his shoulders. You know, uh, I don't know why, but presumably there no no other stretchers, stretcher bearers. They did run out of stretchers early on because although oh, they had so many casualties, as they took them down the beach, the men were lying on the stretchers on the beach. You know, um, anyway, he he decided to use it, and this is uh, Corporal Davidson, who was serving with him in Third uh, Australian Field Field Ambulance. Simpson, uh, the first day, Simpson carried with the rest of the bearers, but was missing the second day, and reported by Sergeant Hookway as being absent from his unit. He had got his little donkey and was doing good work. When this became known, he was given a free hand and carried on independently. He worked mostly in Shrapnel Gully, and as we were also carrying from there, we saw him daily. So what he was doing was taking his donkey and going up into Shrapnel Valley and then on into Monash, and he was picking up the wounded, bringing them back, sat on the donkey, with him walking beside guiding the donkey in and out of the of, of the valley. He was uh, apparently rumoured to take water up to the men on the way up, which is of course not legal if you want to carry a Red Cross brassard. And he had Red Cross brassards both on him, and he had uh, the brassard on the donkey. <laughs> I thought, oh, he's great. Don't shoot at the donkey, he's a civilian non-combatant. So, donkeys as I remember from my childhood, and not a comfortable ride. So presumably you couldn't take any very seriously injured men. Uh, Absolutely, Gary. And here you've really hit the nail on the head. And this can cause some of the controversy because people keep talking about him bringing the dying out and the rest of it. He is not. uh, You cannot, you could only take lightly wounded men on a donkey. That's absolute, you know, you cannot take anyone who's unconscious, they'll fall off. Uh, you can't take uh, somebody with a severe head wound. You can't take him with uh, 
chest, you know, the chest cavity wound at all. Uh, no abdominal wounds with your guts, but definitely not. Uh, thigh wounds where you've got any sort of femoral artery or, or anything serious in the thigh. What you can take are people with minor head injuries, no, uh, arm wounds, and generally below the knee, but leg wounds that are not serious foot wounds, uh, where people can't walk. What he was doing was he was taking people out. Uh, what, now, why is that important if they, they weren't that w seriously wounded? The thing is, what you're doing is getting them out of a place of danger. Because if they stay there, they'll deteriorate. They could they could get uh, gangrene, you know, because it takes, there's, you know, it gets them out quickly, but it also means that it reduces the chances of them being wounded again. So he's performing a role, and it was considered at the time to, to be a, a, a useful role. Uh, here's uh, Private William Robertson, who was in C-section, third field ambulance, i.e. with him. And he says, I wish to pay my tribute to Private Simpson, whom I knew well on Gallipoli, better known to me as Murph. <laughs> oh, no, Murphy. Well, Murphy is, yeah. Uh, being in the same section of third field ambulance, I saw his, I saw his courageous... Help to the wounded, which is now history. Many times we told him to be careful at that in certain parts of Shrapnel Gully, but he was too brave to take any notice. I think that's a little bit of after after wash. Uh, I think he, he knew what he was doing. He probably had learned the, the way to go, the places to walk. I don't I don't think he was stupid. Uh, I think that he 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 thought he'd mastered the gully and knew where it was reasonably safe to go. When I say safe not by any definition of safe that you and I would use. There's nowhere in shrapnel on Monash Gully that's safe uh, for us. Um, Captain Fry was writing to, uh, to his sister uh, later on, Mr. Annie Kirkpatrick, and I want you to remember when you're listening to this that this is written to, as a next-of-kin letter. Now, you all know what they're like. Next-of-kin letters, they don't say, he was a complete bastard and everyone in the unit hated him. They say nice things. So, let, you know, let's not go too far overboard. But on the other hand, it hasn't got the usual claptrap in it. it. It refers to what he was doing. He says, your brother landed with us from the torpedo boat at daybreak on the 25th of April, so taking part in the historic landing. He did excellent work during the day. That's normal stretcher bearing. He discovered a donkey in a deserted hut took possession and worked up and down a dangerous valley carrying wounded men to the beach on the donkey. This plan was a great success, so he continued day by night, from morning till night, became one of the best-known men in the division. The work your brother did was, was, so, was so exceptionally good. And many people saw him doing it. Now, there have been arguments that he was unknown at the time, but people do mention him, you know, and this is uh, Gunner Sidney Locke, now, he wrote a book with a French-sounding name, which I've completely forgotten, Straits Impregnable by Sidney Dullock, I think it is, French-ified. And he said, One Red Cross fellow with a donkey passed twice, tw twice or thrice that day. The man with a donkey, as we called him, was becoming known to all. Firing seemed not to worry him. On his donkey he would mount a man wounded in leg or foot and bring him down Monash or Shrapnel Valley to the dressing station on the beach. Again, you notice, uh, wounded in the leg, or foot. You know, that's the reality of it. That's it. Um, was he the only person operating in this way then? Because they refer to the man with the donkey. No, and this is part of the confusion. Uh, you know that uh, I interviewed a chap called Baker, Thomas Baker, uh, Royal Naval Division, uh, 
Uh, I can't remember which battalion, but it, it, that, when they were attached to Gallipoli, he made an attack on Dead Man's Ridge. <laughs> and that's what happened to most of the people who attacked with him on Dead Man's Ridge on, uh, I think, about the 3rd of May. And uh, he refers to... He was, he was shot. He was shot by machine guns. People next to him were killed. He was wounded in the, the foot. And uh, when the Turks came for them and started banning people... Uh, quite reasonably so, you know, they're finishing off the wounded, which is just how things were at those times. Uh, he pushed himself and went bippity-boppity-bip to the bottom of the hill, where he was picked up by the man with a donkey. The end, in the interview, goes on to say, it wasn't Simpson. <laughs> there were other people doing it. And one of the great confusions is there was a New Zealander called David Henderson, who was also doing this work. Now, he took over, in some senses, from Simpson, but, but there were people with donkeys working right the way through, and there is some confusion. The best confusion of all is, uh, is, 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 is almost surrealistic confusion, is that a picture, a photograph of Henderson, David Henderson, was used to paint the picture of Simpson. <laughs> so, if you ever see a stamp or a commemoration of, of him, it's actually of Henderson. And that does show the confusion. But your, your question is legitimate. Other people were doing it. But Simpson and Henderson got most of the recognition for doing it. Uh, recognition isn't everything, but they were widely perceived. Certainly Simpson was widely perceived to be doing it. Uh, just another quote. If I, uh, this is uh, just the day before uh, Baker was wounded. This is Private Men Hennett. Men Hennett, yeah. 16th Australian Battalion. So right up at the end. Uh, he's wounded on 3rd of May sorry it's on the same time as Baker exactly the same time many of us and this shows how I like this quote because it shows how Simpson operated and it is accepted by both people who are critical of the Simpson myth and people who just parrot it and he says many of us were put out of action and, and placed out of the line of fire for evacuation when possible it doesn't always happen straight away does it uh, after a terrible night daylight eventually arrived and soon after came Simpson some of our cases were pitiful, but this cheerful digger had a word and a smile for all. He came to me and asked, asked what was wrong. When I told him I'd been shot through the left leg, just above the knee, he asked me if I could walk. I told him I might have been able to a few hours before, uh, had I known the way down. Always something to remember, because a lot of them don't know where they are. But now it had gone cold and stiff, and I doubted my ability to do so. He rebandaged my leg and helped me to his famous donkey. He brought me safely to the beach clearing station. And when I thanked him, he said, he smiled and said, glad to help you. Now, you know, I think that's uh, clearly defined as he, this is the role he's doing. He's going up and down the beach. Now, we'll come to the myth as to how often he did a bit later, if you see what I mean. Uh, let's, let's examine the myth altogether. But it should be defined right now that he isn't the only one, you know, and... Uh, now, um, so, uh, how long did he last? You must be, how, many, how long do you think he lasts from the myths and legends? Well, uh, I, I'd like to, to take it back, if I may, to the oh, yeah, stretch of areas. So, Simpson is probably the most famous. We've established there were others. So, what was he doing that others weren't? Well, he was using the donkey, but we've just established other people were using it. But he wasn't carrying a stretcher in and out of Monash Valley and Shrapnel Now, the, 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 the system of rescue is basically the unit stretcher bearers brought them back to collection points for the 3rd uh, Australian Field Ambulance Brigade. So, 
Any talk of going, and we'll come back to that, any talk of rescuing people from no man's land is out. The, the, the rescue, if there is, and the situation of trenches is there is almost no man's land. It's, it's nine feet, 15 feet, 20 feet uh, up at Quinns and the rest of it. So they're, 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 they're not rescuing people from no man's land. You know, that. But what they are, the the union stretcher bearers bring them back, and then uh, and then to the collection point, and then that's where Simpson picked them up, and that's clear in Mehmet's quote. You know, he's brought back to the collection point, and then Simpson arrives, rebandages him, and takes him out. But the other stretcher bearers are working in teams of two. Uh, sometimes it has to be four, but I think it's usually two at the time. It's four when it's muddy. And they were also working, taking them in and out of that valley. So they are doing work which, in many ways, is equally uh, dangerous. Uh, I, I, I don't think you have to say someone's doing something better than the other. They're both taking great risk. They're, oh, sorry, both. But the, the ordinary stretcher bearers and Simpson and the other donkey people, they're doing slightly different roles, equally dangerous roles. You know, uh, Simpson does get more credit for that. But that's partly because I think he did it every day. Whereas uh, some of the sources I've seen suggest that the, ambul- the stretcher bearers, only do, they're, they're rostered. Um, one set suggests that they only do it every three days. Well, Simpson's doing it every day. We'll talk about how many he saved and the rest later, but he's, he is generally regarded as having done it every day. And so he, it's, it's all much, you know, different levels of risk. And working on his own. So is that because of his personality? You know, he, he couldn't get on with other people. I'm not sure. He's always referred to as a, a laugh and a joke. You know, people talk about him being cheerful, um, which doesn't sound like a Geordie to me, but um, it, 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 they talk about him laughing and joking, um, about him whistling, uh, you know, tune, tune, whistling, uh, you know, as he goes. Um, I think he liked to work on his own. Yes, I agree. I don't know his motivation because he, he never recorded his motivation. I think he probably preferred to work on his own in a, a clearly defined job where he had defined what he was doing to his own satisfaction. He had assessed what he was doing, if you like. Assessed is probably too technical a word, in, in, you know. But he decided what he did. He'd used his initiative to, to press into use the donkeys. I should, uh, you know, we'll talk about where they come up, come from later. But he, he pressed into use donkeys. Uh, he'd used his initiative and brain, and he was happy doing his role. Uh, equally valid is the role of the ordinary stretcher bearer. After his death, even Colonel Monash refers to it as Simpson's self imposed task. And I cannot understand why he was not reined in, as it were, by the authorities unless it was felt to be good for morale. I think this idea that he was mutant... I mean, sometimes you get things, people saying he deserted. Well, they knew exactly where he was. They met him in and out. Uh, his, uh, his captain, Captain Fry, I think it was. Yes, Captain Fry, third field, Australian field ambulance. He knew where he was. He knew what he was doing. They had assessed what he was doing. Clearly, they had assessed it, and they decided he was doing good work, and he could get on with it. Uh, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that this big rebellious. He did live on his own. He didn't live with the rest of the unit, uh, and he, he, if he was attacked, he, he ate and uh, with the Indian Mountain uh, battery, 
Uh, I think it's the 21st. I do forget which it is. Uh, please excuse me about um, chuckle-headed memory, really. Um, he, 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 he ate with them, and he also used their donkeys. Um, he, the, the donkeys, I should say, the donkeys. The man with a donkey. And he, he had a variety of donkeys, uh, and I love the name. <laughs> Duffy number one. <laughs> and then this is where I love Duffy number two. Now, I think that shows spectacular imagination. And then the rest, Murphy, Queen Elizabeth, clearly named after the battleship, uh, you know, that was uh, the, the Super Dreadnought, and Abdul. Uh, and there seems confusion as to how many donkeys he used, but those are the names that crop up most often. Actually, Murphy's the one, uh, Murphy and Duffy are the ones that crop I've seen most often. And uh, he seemed to have used several of them, uh, you know. Uh, and he, he went on, on long trip, how many how many times did he do with said donkeys? You know. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that he rescued up to three hundred um, men from what's being described as no man's land. Now you mentioned no man's land, but did he did he rescue that number of people? Well, he lasted twenty four days, so three hundred divided by twenty four is probably beyond both of our mental capacities. But it would mean going up there fifteen times a day, you know every day without a break it would leave it, it's a, at least an hour to get in and an hour to get out in my view uh donkeys aren't particularly quick moving uh there are obstacles in the way there is there are times when you couldn't move i think estimates of 300 are part of the myth you know and there is no documentation that justifies any such ludicrous uh uh thing um i think we're more talking about uh to be honest, we're talking about 50, 60, 70, 80. I don't know. They're guesses. But I think that's still an enormous number in 24 days. That's two a day. Absolutely. If you make it three a day, you're pushing up to 80. Uh, I think that's the reality of it. Uh, you know, uh, and, and pe- people got... Yeah. So let's move on then. You say he lasted 24 days. How was he killed? Well, he was... <laughs> The, the Turks had launched a really big attack on the night of the 18th, 19th of May, and they'd been slaughtered, but inevitably we had casualties as well. Uh, and uh, Captain Fry, with six squads of bearers, went to the Walker, Walker's Road Regimental Aid Post, which is on Bridges Road, just south of, uh, of Brown's Hill, at 0500, cleared the station of wounded, and he, the reference, the official account, refers to heavy machine gun fire in Shrapnel Valley, uh, which I think means Monash, really, uh, caused three patients to be re-wounded and three casualties amongst the bearer. Uh, the other two were badly wounded, but Simpson Simpson was uh, was killed. Charles Bean, the Australian uh, journalist and later official historian, gives the following account. On May 19th, he went up the valley past the water guard, where he generally had his breakfast, but it was not ready. Never mind, he called. Get me a good dinner when I come back. With two patients, he was coming down the creek bed. He must have had two donkeys. And I'm not, this, I don't think any of this is particularly accurate. When he was hit through the heart, both the wounded men being wounded again, he had carried many scores of men down the valley and had saved many lives at the cost of his own. He was supposed to have been hit in the back, so probably coming back, been hit from up where the uh, Turkish 57th Memorial uh, is now, that area which was called the chessboard uh, again I am surmising, I don't know the bullet went in the back, smashed through his stomach uh, and ex- well, it came out through his stomach uh, he was put aside he was dead, he was put 
They couldn't rescue him. I mean, it was under fire from the machine gun, obviously. And he was picked up next that night and buried at Hell's Spit, which you and I now know as Beach Cemetery. And we, we've stood next to his grave on many, many occasions with groups. And it, it's always a bit sad to think he ended up there. You know, uh, Monash, who has not wrote the following. Private Simpson and his little beast earned the admiration of everyone at the upper end of the valley. I Monash Valley. They worked all day and night throughout the whole period since the landing, and the help rendered to the wounded was invaluable. Simpson knew no fear and moved unconcernedly above shrapnel and rifle fire, steadily carrying out his self-imposed tasks. That's the thing you mentioned earlier. Day by day, and he frequently earned the applause of the personnel of the personnel for his many fearless rescues rescues of wounded men from areas subject to rifle and shrapnel fire. He means the top of Monash. Valley, and, uh, which is named after him, but that's the left turn. Of him. So, so he was mentioned in dispatches. Why didn't he get a VC? Well, this is uh, Padre George Green. Uh, says, if ever there's a man deserves the Victoria Cross, it was Simpson. Uh, and uh, you know, the point is though, he didn't get it, uh, and uh, you know, he was often co- he didn't get it. And what happens is at the time. I'll come back to the technicalities of why he didn't get it, but he didn't get it at the time, you know, because I don't think anyone put him in for it, firstly, which is, you know, our officers have to put you in, uh, and there doesn't, there's no documentary evidence at all. Um, what does happen, though, is he becomes a myth and a legend. He's helped by his mix-up with Richard Henderson, if I didn't, I think I might call him something else, but Henderson anyway. Did I call him David Henderson? Yeah, Richard Henderson it is here. Uh, but Henderson, certainly... Um, and uh, there's an account of his actions published in a 1916 propaganda book called Glorious Deeds of Australia, Australasians in the Great War. This is where the 300 men come. This is coming where he apparently dashed into no man's land with his donkey to rescue people. Uh, there's a silent film, Murphy, what, Murphy of Anzac? I've not seen that. Uh, and then it all builds up and builds up and builds up until you get to The Man with a Donkey by Sir Irving Benson, which celebrates the 50th anniversary. Uh, that came out in 65. And um, Do you know that uses the picture of Henderson and all the rest of it? But the thing is, do you know what? By then, it's just gone out of hand. He's seen as a symbol of every Australian soldier. Brave, tough, ingenious, self-reliant. You know, the Australian Simpson is that. Um, and there's a weird religious symbolism behind the man with a donkey. The symbolism is obviously, if I, I know you've studied the New Testament a lot, and uh, you'll remember that Jesus of Nazareth rode on a donkey, you know. And uh, it's weird you know, because they start, they, you start getting this almost Saint Simpson thing pervading, you know, that he was, you know. Um, and they, they think, you know, the VC thing. And then what really goes wrong for me is when in about 2011, they start, he's put forward to be re-examined and inquire into unresolved recognition for past acts of naval and military gallantry of Vella with the idea of getting him a VC. And people put submissions for. Now, the submissions for are basically the myth. The submissions against were marshaled by a chap called Graham Wilson, who produced a book, Dust, Donkeys and Delusions, the myth of Simpson and his donkey exposed. Fortunate title in my view, but, you know, Graham obviously felt that covered every aspect of it. And basically, he, tr- he tried to say he's not slagging Simpson off, but he's slagging the myth off. It does tend to come out that he... 
It finishes up by saying that Simpson wasn't special at all. Now, I think that goes too far. And this is what happens if you try and set people up retrospectively for awards. People push back. The same has happened, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, with Monash, who was, they're meant to be making him a field marshal. Bollocks! He wasn't a field marshal. Simpson didn't get the VC. He was mentioned in dispatches. You know, that was it. Um, it, it, it. It just goes too far. And, you know, I think he did do something special. I also think that Stretcher Bearers did something special. Uh, we don't know their names. Now, that's perhaps the more invidious thing. Don't attack Simpson. It, what he did was admired at the time. There are sufficient sources for me to be happy that it, he was, and, and the fact that people claim to have been rescued by him, who uh, Wilson claims are, in a sense, proves that people wanted to be linked with him. You know, <laughs> he he was well known at the time. Why would Monash write the next day that? Yes, a bit of a puff, uh, you know, blowing it up a bit. But why he wasn't put in for the VC? He wasn't. Doing, he was. He was recognising a brave man's work. There is uh, an interesting correlation there, isn't there? Because they they present. Simpson as a stereotypical Australian, big, strong, bit of a maverick, you know, goes his own way, doesn't uh, doesn't take orders, and yet the modern brain wants to associate with him. And if you go to Gallipoli, as you and I do, you know Monash, you know Simpson, and you probably know Birdwood. Hamilton is a peripheral figure, but he is known... And surely that's enough recognition. I, I think so. The one thing I'd absolutely be certain about, absolutely certain about, in the sense as much as you can be, sorry, historian suddenly stepped in there, is that Simpson wouldn't have given a toss either way. Absolutely certain of that. He, he wasn't a typical Australian. He was British. But like many Britons, he'd gone to live in Australia and then thus took Australian identity. It doesn't matter. Is he a great Australian hero? Yes. Is he a great British hero? Yes. Is everything that, that of the myth true? Absolutely not. But to me, every time I stand by his grave, I just think, well done, mate. You really did a good job. You know, you're not the only person doing a good job, but you did a good job. And your contemporaries, for the most part, seem to have appreciated it. Well, I agree entirely, Peter. I think the fact that you know, a ordinary soldier doing an extraordinary job is remembered. And um, I agree, I think he probably wouldn't care less, but he is remembered nonetheless. That's it, we're in agreement. <laughs> There's a first. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?